This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you're here. I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. And on today's show, I'm joined by Amira Rose Davis, an assistant professor of history and women's gender and sexuality studies at Penn State University. And we have a special co-host this week, Shakia Taylor, a writer in Chicago, Illinois, who loyal listeners will recognize from a recent baseball-themed hot take here on Burn It All Down. We are thrilled to have Shakia back and for an entire episode. First things first, as always, thank you to our patrons whose support of this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign, Make Burn It All Down, possible. We are forever and always grateful. If you'd like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com slash burnitalldown. You can pledge as little as $1 per month, but if you donate a little bit more, you can access exclusive like an extra Patreon-only segment or a monthly newsletter. For our August segment, which went up last week, each of us picks someone in sports we feel is unfairly maligned, and we defended them. Give it a listen and then pop over to our Patreon page to leave a comment on the segment about who or what in sports you think deserves more love or at least less hate. On today's show, we're going to talk about our cultural obsession with Tiger Woods after his second place finish at the recent PGA Golf Championship was the main storyline out of that tournament. Then we'll discuss women in baseball because the eighth Women's World Cup begins on Wednesday and for the first time ever will be played in the United States. And Lindsay talks with Elizabeth Williams of the Atlanta Dream about Atlanta's phenomenal second half of the season, the WNBA playoffs, and whether we should expect the players to opt out of their current collective bargaining agreement on October 31st. Of course, we'll cap it off by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout-outs to women who deserve shout-outs, and telling you what is good in our world. But first, Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, passed away last week at the age of 76. We wanted to spend a few minutes at the top of the show remembering this cultural icon. Shakia, you had a thread about her the other day. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, I was really devastated to hear about Aretha's passing, but I remember that she has kind of like, you know, a very interesting connection to sports. She sang Take Me Out to the Ball Game in a 1990s MLB promo with the Tigers, you know, from her hometown in Detroit. It's super cute. There's a scene in the promo, I don't know if you have seen it, where she marries Cecil Fielder and there's like bats over their heads. So cute. And it's a real funky version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. She also sang the national anthem quite a few times, the 93 World Series, the 2011 ALCS. And in 2013, MLB honored her at the Civil Rights Game. 
she's got a really strong connection to sports. She apparently sang at a couple of wrestling events, which was pretty surprising to me. If you ask Aretha to sing at your sporting event, apparently she would come. (laughs) That sounds right. Amira, I know that you liked her shade a lot. Yeah, I Aretha was the queen of many things and Shade was right up there. My <laughs> I enjoy many clips and many gifs now of her. There's some clips floating around online right now if you want to see, for instance, during her feud with Patty LaBelle, her like flip of the I'm doing a motion that nobody can see, but her flip of her jacket and walking faster was epic. And of course, being interviewed on Young Singers Today, they said Adele, and she was like, young singer, beautiful singer, like going through the list. <laughs> he said, Taylor Swift. And she said, mm-hmm, great gowns, beautiful <laughs> gowns. <laughs> Which is my favorite clip. So... She was wonderful, Queen of Shade, and important for so many reasons. And there's a few pieces out right now. If you go over to Black Perspectives, the blog of the African-American Intellectual History Society, there's a good piece by my colleague here, Crystal Sanders, on what Aretha meant to civil rights movement, to Detroit, how growing up under her father really connected her to the movement, her longtime support of Angela Davis, and she was in line with the long history of Black entertainers and athletes who harness their fame and their proximity to resources and money to help um, bail. And so she famously helped uh, Angela Davis out with bail. Um, this is something that we've seen in terms of, like, say, Harry Belafonte um, paying for Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral, or even Jay-Z and Beyonce very covertly posting bail for Ferguson protesters. And so she is very much, you know, at the forefront of this tradition. And so besides being just the queen of soul and an icon uh, and all of that, she's also, she's a warrior um, in many ways. And we've definitely lost a, a huge light here. Yeah, that's so true. Well, thanks you guys for those those thoughts. And now let's get started with the show. All right, Amira, you want to get us started? Yeah. So last week was the 100th PGA Championship and it was won by the reigning champion, Brooks Kepka. And he had a tremendous outing at the PGA Championship. And He led the whole time, and his 72-hole total of 16 under 264 was basically right there tying the absolute scoring record for the whole tournament set over 17 years ago. So he had a wonderful outing. Now, if you didn't know this or you didn't hear about this, I don't blame you because his victory was very much overshadowed by Tiger's defeat. Tiger chased him the whole time, and his comeback and almost victory became the leading storyline coming out of the weekend after the PGA Championship. And it's this really interesting moment where even at the end of the tournament, the cheers for Tiger and for what he had done and the kind of disbelief around this comeback completely washed over and overshadowed (laughs) the victory of Kepka. And it really speaks to our continuing obsession with Tiger as an icon, as as a star. And there's a lot of layers here. And so 
one, there's been this thing within golf of the tiger effect and this idea that the ratings have really been tied to tiger and he mainstreamed golf, you know, when he came onto the scene and ratings have kind of risen and fallen with his appearance on the circuits. And this idea that, well, where would golf go? Where are the next superstars? And that nobody could match what Tiger did. And then, of course, you have it wrapped up in his brief downfall, which was tied as much to the downfall of his marriage as to his back injuries and his losing his strength, his uh, swing and all of this stuff. And so what you have here is a kind of multi-pronged rehabilitation story and comeback and reemergence that not everybody in the golf world, I think, is applauding because I think for many, his downfall was a kind of well, he had it coming. He was notoriously stern and cold and, you know, he was just too black for the golf course and all of this stuff. So there's just all of these kind of messy parts to our continued, you know, attention on Tiger that I found fascinating coming to the forefront as he makes these kind of returns to the game. And it I would love to talk and get you guys' thoughts about it, especially thinking about it relative to something like Venus Williams, who departs the game based on injuries and dealing with obviously her autoimmune uh, stuff, and then still is coming back at an older age despite this. And when she gets close to a final, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, like Venus is doing it again. So I'm trying to, you know, map on how much of this is just kind of, I don't want to say nostalgia, but like cheering for people you grew up cheering for. And seeing them back, like, to the top where they haven't been for a huge time. And then how much of it is Tiger specifically and all the things that we attach to his success? Jess? Yeah, I don't know if you can separate those two things because I think that is what it comes down to for me. Like, I don't know very much about golf. Like, I can't really... I know some players, like, (laughs) maybe, like, mentioned by name, but... I grew up with Tiger and he is what I think of when I think of golf. And if and if you want to hear someone wax poetically about how much they love Tiger Woods, Lindsay did this actually on that August Patreon only segment. I mean, she just is so excited about this comeback. And I I feel like we can't even it's hard to overstate what he does for golf. And so I'm taking this from an economist article about the impact of Tiger. And it says that nearly 8.5 million Americans tuned in to watch the USPGA's final round. That was 73% more than the same day a year ago when Tiger was not participating. And it was the biggest audience for the tournament since 2009. And that was the last time that Tiger had a chance to win it. And it was another second place finish. Like, those are humongous numbers for this one single person that he can bring people. And I do feel like there is so much nostalgia here. And I I do wonder even – I think Venus is the right comparison, even though Serena, you know, is also – she's only a year younger <laughs> than Venus. But there is something like when I watch Venus, I think part of it is – not that Serena hasn't struggled, but she's been so dominant in a way that Venus has not. That when Venus is doing really, really well, I – 
and like I'm almost exactly the same age as Venus. It does like give me comfort. Like I can do it too. There is something about that. And I'm wondering if people are mapping a lot of that kind of stuff onto Tiger as well. Shakia. I would have to say just from a non-statistical, non-sports related um, view of it is I think it's just cool to watch a black guy get a redemption story. Like that doesn't happen (laughs) all the time, you know? And if you really think about it, Tiger's quote scandal wasn't like, okay, right. You know, he had an affair. (laughs) That's pretty normal news these days. You know what I'm saying? So I just think a lot of us are rooting for him because it's like, okay, yes, let this guy come back. I remember being a kid and watching him. So Precisely. I think you point to exactly like a huge thing, which is part of why it was a scandal is because Nike had constructed this clean cut persona to market him when he came on the scene. And part of it was how he had to act as a black man or a Blasian in yeah that as a black man in golf (laughs) he had to be clean cut and not rock the boat too much and i think part of the scandal was rejoicing that there was a mess around him but you know who else remembers (laughs) tiger as a kid is brett uh, brooks (laughs) kipka who said quote When he started making that run, it brought me back to when I was a kid and when I was watching him and you heard these roars and being part of that as a fan is cool. And even when you're playing him, it's pretty neat and it pushes you to step up your game. I mean, you know, you have to because he's right there if you fall. And so even on the tour, I think there's this sense uh, and and you hear this from people who, of course, play the Williams sisters as well. And even if we switch sports what happens when people play Tom Brady now, right? Is what happens with these athletes who have been playing and have been at the top for so long that now people who have idolized them are on the scenes competing with them. It's just, or we just saw this, of course, in NBA where Jason Tatum (laughs) went from being a little kid at one of LeBron's camps to dunking on him in the playoffs and you know begging him for a follow on twitter to him finally following him back now so i think that they're in there's part of that kind of cycle in here that i really enjoy from tiger's camp they are very happy with this performance and hoping to continue to build on this and go forward tiger himself says his caddy says he's pretty pumped he's getting there he's very close and tiger said i didn't know where how i was going to start this year how many tournaments i was going to play how well i was going to play i didn't know what swing i was going to use either so i had to kind of figure this out on my own and it's been really hard a lot harder than people think and i'm just very pleased at what i've done so far so it sounds like this just might be the next stone in what might shape up to be uh, quite a comeback story So starting on Wednesday, August 22nd, and lasting through next Friday, August 31st, it's the 8th Women's Baseball World Cup. I imagine there are plenty of people listening who didn't even know that was a thing. It's taking place in Vieira, Florida, which is in central Florida along the eastern coast. It's near the Kennedy Space Center. They call it the Space Coast. It's about 10 miles from where I grew up, actually. And this is an area where they do, or they used to at least, do a lot of spring training. So there's going to be 12 teams competing. Japan, USA, Venezuela, Dominican Republic, Chinese Taipei or Taiwan, Hong Kong, Cuba, Korea, Netherlands, Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia. Japan is actually ranked number one, and they have won the last five World Cups. 
They are also the only country to have a professional women's baseball league. Canada is number two, the USA is number three, and Australia is number four. And I've actually been working on a piece about the tournament for a while now. It's, it should be up sometime this week. And I'm interested in this sport of baseball because it has really skirted around Title IX. I find that fascinating that it's this one sport and, and that doesn't Title IX has not had an impact on women and girls in baseball. And that's specifically because softball exists, right, which was originally created so people could play baseball during the winter. It was indoor baseball. But when baseball it was, was for men. OK, fair. Yes. And now, like when Little League in 1973 was ordered to finally they are forced by law to include girls, they just created Little League softball. And they just push the girls over there. Like, this has been one of the parts of the story of baseball, right? And so to this day, the pipeline for baseball, it's poor, both for players of color, and there isn't even really one for girls and women because of the professionalization of baseball that really made it like a white man's sport, right? And so it does feel, though, that there's more emphasis these days on getting girls into baseball and keeping them there. There's this this organization called Baseball for All. They're dedicated to helping girls find a place locally to play ball. And they also host a national tournament. They actually just did it um, in Rockford. Nearly 300 girls showed up to play. Last summer, I read about Girls Travel Baseball, an all-girl youth travel team. And even Major League Baseball is putting some resources into building the game for girls. And of course, right now, we have this major international tournament on U.S. soil for the first time ever, which is the Baseball World Cup. So Amira, I was hoping that you could start us off by talking a little bit about the history behind all of this to sort of ground this particular moment that we're having. Sure. I mean, so like you pointed to, there's a, uh, actually a long history of women in baseball and girls in baseball that's kind of hidden behind the rise of softball as well as like our kind of cultural obsession with the league of their own is our kind of only point that we see this but if we even think about like staple songs like take me out to the ball game right that if you actually look at that song that was written from the perspective of a girl wanting to go to a baseball game way back in, in the early 20th century and so uh, for instance in my research i write some about the dolly vardens which was a black women's baseball team professional they got paid um to play baseball at right before the turn of the 20th century in the Philadelphia Chester area, right? So there's a long history of baseball and, and girls and women trying to break into baseball. Now, of course, you have a league of their own and we're in an anniversary year. This is the 75th year of the founding of the All-American Girls Baseball League, which of course was advent during wartime to replace the kind of entertainment and fill the void of a lot of male baseball players and a lot of men in general going overseas. And so part of the gimmick of the All-American Girls Baseball League was to combine what was seen as a masculine sport baseball with women playing it in, in uniforms that looked like skirts. And this was going to be the gate attraction and it worked. And a lot of people came out to see, but it also gave a lot of women opportunity to play the game that they wanted to play. And, and obviously it was documented in leave of their own. There's also a hidden history of women of color in baseball here. First in the all American girls baseball league, there were a number of Cuban women who were white passing. And so this 
kind of dovetails off the work of Adrian Burgos, who looks at how the color line in baseball was broken by white passing or kind of ambiguous Latino players who didn't necessarily move the color line because they weren't red as black. And so we see similar stuff happening in the All-American Girls Baseball League. And of course, it was a segregated league. If you think back to a league of their own and you think about this one 21 second clip in which the ball flies off the field to the offense where there's a group of black women kind of watching the tryouts happening. And Gina Davis character says, oh, throw it back, throw it back. And the black woman, you know, kind of stares at the ball and considers it. And she, and Gina Davis character waves again and says, throw it back, throw it back. And the black woman absolutely sends a rocket back to her and Gina Davis catches it, takes her hands out of the glove and kind of shakes it and looks at her and nods as if to say, oh, you can play too. And in that 21 seconds, we see the ever slight, (laughs) very brief nod to the fact that the league was actually segregated. And there's instances of Black women who came to try to try out for the league and were turned away because it was a segregated league and they wanted to maintain that segregation. One of those women was Mamie Peanut Johnson, who would later become one of three women to play in the Negro Leagues after integration. And I have an article on this that I can link in the show notes called No League of Their Own, which looks at the history of Black women in baseball, in particular, Tony Stone, who there's now a Broadway show in the works that's going to be developed with Uzo Duba as Tony, Mamie Peanut Johnson, and Connie Morgan. And these women were brought in as gate attractions to essentially sell the league after integration and after the Negro Leagues were crumbling as a, as a Black institution. And again, that worked. And they allowed the league to survive for another three years while navigating the complexities of being Black women in a defined masculine space. And it kind of is very interesting if you bring this up to then Monet Davis, of course, who had her huge run as a pitcher. Um, and got to meet Mamie before she passed away. And then just this year, a little league team comprised of mostly uh, black boys won the DC Little League Tournament and went on to the Little League World Series. And they were actually named for Mamie Johnson. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to me because I'm in doing research for this piece. I think, I mean, I don't have a great grounding in the history of baseball. I mean, until very recently... My understanding of women in baseball began and ended with a league of their own. And I assume for a lot of people that that's probably true. I'm like, so one thing I totally didn't understand until looking more into the Women's World Cup and and prepping, writing this piece and doing like the level of the too much research that I always do for this kind of stuff is like that Japan had baseball in the late 19th century. Australia had baseball in the late 19th century and that women have been involved in the sport in those countries for just as long. It's just amazing like how narrow everything is around women in baseball. And, you know, the numbers are generally very small. And in both Australia and in Japan and in Canada, they have the same issue with softball. It has functioned really well in all of these places to keep women out of baseball, girls, and actually out of baseball. But this is true in in so many places. And one of my fascinations is the fact that Japan has this pro league. It's small. There's four teams, but it's been around for a while. People didn't think it was going to last that long. And part of why it exists is because there's a major corporate sponsor. Like 
a man saw a girls' high school baseball tournament in Japan and decided that there should be pro league for Japanese women. And so this man decided that he was going to fund this professional league. And it really does seem to make a significant difference for the ability of these women's players when they show up for international competition. They, The women in Japan have just been playing way more games than the women in Canada, the U.S., Australia, and all these other teams. And still, even in Australia and Canada, they have different levels. There's, there's more opportunity, even though it's mainly amateur, for women to play even than in the U.S. And it's just very fascinating to me because we see in so many team sports that Title IX has really done a lot of work in the U.S. It's not obviously we talk about it all the time on this show, like it's not perfect and equality and equity in particular is a real issue still between men and women's sport. But if we think about U.S. soccer or the women's basketball team or even the softball team, those kind of team sports have really benefited a lot. And baseball, it's just lagging in, in a way that we don't see with, with other sports, even though all these other countries have similar issues around women's baseball. Amira? Yeah, I think it's a really great reminder about as much as Title IX is celebrated, how much work it has to do and the difference it made was in very specific sports. And there's a bit of disparity within the application of Title IX. And so we see silos like like this, which is a great example, where girls have really who want to play baseball and, and Jennifer Ring does a lot of great research around this have been pushed into softball or it's been like, well, softball is the girl's version of baseball, as you mentioned before. And so I think it actually, when we talk about girls and women in baseball, it really forces us to rethink our understanding of things like Title IX and what makes a sport a girl sport or a guy sport, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, and it's not to malign softball, it's just to understand that they're different sports and that there's a lot of people who want to play baseball and have been blocked uh, or have to overcome that and play on boy squads or all male squads or, you know, have been kind of pushed out of the game. And so I think that I'm looking forward to, you know, more coverage of it. And like you said, pointing to a kind of global movement of girls who love the sport of baseball and and want to play that specific game. Yeah. And just to wrap this up, to give listeners who hopefully will be watching some part of the Women's World Cup a little bit about some of the players on the U.S. team, I think it's fascinating. There's a 16-year-old named Ashton Lansdell, and this was the first time that she was eligible to make the team, and, and she's on there. She's 16. On the other end of that, Isla Borders, she's a left-handed pitcher. She's 43. And this is going to be the first time that she's ever played with women. She's had a storied career in baseball. She's played with a bunch of men. She played for the St. Paul Saints. She's currently a firefighter in Portland, but she's sort of on the other end of that. And then you have Michaela Underwood. Everyone that I talk to about the team mentions Underwood. She's been on the team since 2006. This will be her ninth time representing the U.S., which is the record for both men and women. She grew up playing baseball, but in order to go to college, a and get a scholarship in sports. She actually played volleyball. A lot of women go into softball to get that scholarship, but she actually played volleyball at the UNC. She's 37, had her first kid in February. So I'll be looking for for Underwood. And then I want to mention for Japan, because I've done a bunch of research on this team, there's a lot of phenomenal players for Japan, but Ayami Sato, she's their star pitcher. She's probably the best female baseball player in the world. She won the MVP award at the last two World Cups 
And in the last two World Cups, in the final game where Japan won the gold, she shut out both teams. So it'll be very fun to see what she's able to do this year. So I'm really looking forward to this World Cup. Up next, Lindsay's interview with the Atlanta Dream's Elizabeth Williams. All right. Hello, everyone. I am here with the great Elizabeth Williams, who I cannot believe I have not had on this podcast yet. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. So Elizabeth is, I believe, in her fourth year in the WNBA. Is that it? Yes. Wow. Time flies. And she is one of the only Duke grads I like. And so that is a very big thing. (laughs) She was her accolade. Let's run through them a little bit. Fourth overall pick in the 2015 draft to the Connecticut Sun. But her career really took off in 2016 when she was traded to the Atlanta Dream. She was the most improved player in the whole league in 2016. And then she, uh, last year, 2017, was an all-star. And this year is on one of the best uh, teams in the league. The Atlanta Dream are 22 and 10, second in the league, nine and one in their last 10 games. By the time you guys hear this, we'll already know playoff seating, but it's, I think, locked up that you'll at least have one buy, maybe two, maybe a buy right into the semi. So, Elizabeth. How have you guys done it? Atlanta Dream has just turned it around this season. What has happened? (laughs) Can you put it into words? (laughs) It's hard to say. I mean, because, you know, when you get a new coach, like it's kind of hit or miss with the first year or so. But I think everyone came in with an open mind. And I think we're all a really good group of women that are willing to kind of go through the bumps and bruises and learn each other and then trust that at the end of the day, things would work out. And I think Coach Nikki's done a great job with us. And I think the team, we just have a lot of fun playing with each other. Yeah, I think that really, really can tell. I remember talking to some people before the season about the dream. And I think our thing was they have so many good pieces, but we have no idea if they will fit, <laughs> you know, or like right. like exactly. in, in, yeah. in what way they were fit. And throughout the first half of the year, there was definitely some days where they didn't fit. But it's it's just all moving so seamlessly right now. What is the most fun part about the team? Like you really all do just seem like you kind of have each other's backs. Yeah, I don't know. Our team's like, <laughs> the word I used the other day was obnoxious when I was talking to Sykes. Like, <laughs> we're just like, we just, we're so loose all the time. And then like, even on the court, like, we'll just come at you, you know, we want to play with a fast pace. And that's like a really fun way to play. And I also think defensively, like, we're really solid. So it just makes for a really fun basketball. But I think off the court, we're just really ridiculous and just try to have a lot of fun. But at the same time on the court, it's been translating really well. Yeah, there was that great video. I think you might have put it on Instagram where LaChina Robinson was doing a preview of the game uh, on, on yes, court in yes. Atlanta. And because she's your uh, commentator for the Atlanta Dream. And behind her, just player after player just like shows up and just mugs and makes ridiculous faces. <laughs> and I think your caption exactly. was like, yes. who are these people? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, that's really great. So from the outside, this WNBA season has been exhausting, but also like a blast because the parity in the league is much stronger than it has been in in recent years. Has it felt that way on the court? And how do you kind of handle that pressure? 
Yeah, I mean, I love the parody, honestly. I think it makes, in other seasons, the last two games, like, were not this important, but they're so important now for every team. Like, the difference between two and five, it's like a couple games. So um, it makes it fun. It makes it makes it competitive. It makes us as players, you know, want to compete at the highest level every day without, you know, focusing on other things. So, I mean, I like it a lot. I don't feel pressure, but it's just like, I feel like that's how the game should be played. Well, there's been a lot of stories this season about the travel. And I think it's been, you know, the season is about three weeks shorter this year than it usually is, which is, that is a lot of time to fit the exact same number of games into, uh, I believe, 14 weeks as opposed to 17 weeks in order to accommodate the world championships. And this is just kind of, I think, exacerbated some issues that are within the league as far as back to backs and travel days. And we saw it really reach ahead reach ahead when the Las Vegas Aces decided to forfeit a game against the Washington Mystics after they had traveled for 25 hours leading up to this. Now we talked about this in our last episode so our listeners can go back and listen to our take, but I want to know what you as a player thought about their decision. I mean, honestly as a player like at the end of the day our bodies are are the priority like this is our job is to play basketball and if you can't do that because you physically don't feel like you can then I definitely understand it and I felt for Vegas and I know there obviously there are players that are like frustrated and saying you know that the game should be played but at the same time I think by Vegas you know making that bold move it it forces people to address the issue here that when there are these ridiculous circumstances there should be you know, either like an ability to charter or just like there should be something in place so this doesn't happen. Or there should be a rule like in the NBA where if you're traveling, you can't play a game if you're traveling across time zones that same day. So, I mean, it's tough, obviously, for us. Like if you think about like Atlanta, our position, because Washington's right behind us. But as thinking about the league as a whole, I definitely understand where Vegas is coming from. And it's really hard to fault them for finally saying, you know what, I know this has happened in the past and teams still play the games, but we just physically don't think this is okay. Yeah, I thought it was really smart. And I I had to wonder, it seems like there's a lot of momentum right now with players speaking up and advocating and not just for themselves. I mean, we see a lot of advocacy for social justice issues as well, but also in saying like advocating for themselves in the league and Vegas is one of the younger teams. Do you think that had something to do with it? Your younger players kind of seeing a little bit more clearly maybe than some of the veterans and saying, Hey, this isn't okay. Yeah. I, I think that is a big part of it. I think younger players want to be more involved which is I mean really important but I mean obviously the veteran players on their team felt like it was the right thing to do also so it's nice to have that young push but I think it's it's opening the eyes of of everyone now seeing that now you are I know pretty involved in things with the players association what's your role are you the team rep or Uh, yeah I'm the player rep for Atlanta for Atlanta that's great and so can you explain there's been a lot of talk about the upcoming there's a deadline related to the CBA the collective bargaining agreement can you kind of explain to people what what that is and kind of what's at stake in the next few months yeah, so the opt-out date for the CBA is October 31st, I believe. And basically, either us or the league can opt out. I mean, realistically, the league's not going to opt out. Yeah. So <laughs> we, as a union, have the option to opt out of the current current CBA. 
um, and basically, you know, come come up with negotiations of things we want to change in it, whether it's dealing with benefits, with travel, salaries, like all the big, you know, topics that have been coming up a little more recently. So as player reps, uh, um, we like vote on certain things. And then obviously, like we have the executive committee consisting of like the president, NECA and lay vice president, all the other vice presidents and other positions and just voting on certain things that happen. So we have calls pretty consistently with the union and the league. And so that's kind of where we are with that. Do you right now have any expectations? Like, would you expect an opt out or (laughs) try and put you on the spot a little bit? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's what it seems like for sure. Yeah. That's where everything's kind of leaning. Yeah. And so in that case, it wouldn't be a case where right away there could be a player stoppage or anything. Right. Because this, even if you opt out now, this would still be valid through 2019. Is that correct? Correct. So you would just start negotiating, negotiating and figuring out the next step then. But do you think that we're at a place where if some of these problems aren't taken care of, that we could see some actions coming from the players? Yeah, I mean, and that's always a possibility when you're in these types of negotiations. And I think I think the players understand that. I think we don't want to get into that, but it's a very realistic possibility. Yeah, it's exciting. I was Mo Curry was telling me that she's, you know, in her 10 years in the league, she's never seen players. So, so many players so invested in contract talks. And I thought that was uh, pretty promising, I think, for the state of the league going forward. Yeah, even the difference between my rookie year and now, it's just like the involvement has shot up by everybody. Really? So, yeah. What do you attribute that to? I think players being more willing to speak out. I think having Terry lead our, our union has been a big part of it too. Like she is, she's bold and not afraid to fight for us and she's very open about it. And I think that's definitely encouraged a lot of us to, to be more, to be, be more vocal and just be more involved in general. That's great. She's talking about uh, Terry Jackson, who is the union president or vice. Uh, she's the leader of the union. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what the title is. Well, look, that's exciting to hear about all the engagement. Um, going back to Atlanta really quickly. Did uh, Coach Nikki Collin, who, like you said, first year, I think she's got to be the the coach of the year. I can't, like, right yeah, now, I've, like, yeah. just ridiculous what she's done in Atlanta this year and the turnaround. Was there anything in particular that she said to you all 10, 12 games ago? Was there any moment that, that things really changed or was it just a matter of getting more comfortable? Oh, it's hard to say because we started that first win streak that we had. It started, I think, the last time we played Phoenix, maybe, or like the game before that. And then like two games after that was the trade with Lay and Bentley. And then we just started, we were rolling from there. So I don't know if something in particular was said, if it was just like trying to get us on a run before All-Star break or, you know, I can't remember specifically, but I think at that point we were just kind of trusting that our offense would come into place because at that point, like we were still top in the league in defense, but we were shooting like 30% as a team. Right, yeah. So it's one of those things where it's like, okay, eventually this ball is going to go in the basket. And I'm pretty sure that was along the lines of what we had talked about before that win streak had started. And then we started scoring. Yeah. I was at that game in Washington where the ball started finding the basket. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was absolutely, 
completely ridiculous. We were just sitting there like, I think you guys shot over 60% in that game. It was just like, what do you do with this team when they when they're making that many shots? There's just nothing you can do. And obviously, you guys, I mean, losing Angel is just so tough, you know, not only from a basketball standpoint, but just it's it's good having her back in the league. She was playing well, you want She's a person, at least from the outside, you want good things for, you know, you want her to be a part of that. Uh, What did that do to your team? And how are you guys kind of managing that? Because you you haven't on the court wins wise, you haven't really lost a beat, but I'm sure it must be a little harder than it's looking. (laughs) Yeah, it's tough. I mean, when we first heard about it, I mean, Coach Nikki got a little emotional, like in our pregame talk that that next game, because it's just like Angel has meant so much to our team this season and just like her choosing to come back and being so willing to like basically be in this new system and do what she's done. So it's like, I think emotionally it's harder than, than what people would think just cause like we're still winning games, but anytime a player like that goes down, it's hard, but she's like, she's always around and encouraging us on the bench. And I think the biggest thing too is, is like, we always want to play for each other, whether that person's hurt or not. Like that's kind of been our MO is playing for each other, not just playing with each other. And so when she went down, I think in the back of our heads, like that's always been there. Yeah. And I thought, I think it's been incredible how she's handled it, at least publicly, you know, still mm-hmm. being around. I can't imagine how tough that has to be <laughs> to kind of, you know, still because yeah. still, you want to be there. Well, look, going into the playoffs, people will be listening to this the day the playoffs begin. Um, what member of the Atlanta Dream should people really be on the lookout for? Now, we know you in there blocking every <laughs> single shot. We know we've got Renee running everything. But who who else? Who, who's, who's a play? We know we have Tiffany Hayes, who's won, I think, 20 Player of the Month awards this year <laughs> or something like that, even though she wasn't an all-star, which don't get me started. But who else? Who, who has surprised you on the team and who do you think might surprise people in the playoffs? I mean, it's not a surprise to me, but I'd definitely say Jessica Breland. I mean, she makes the engine go offensively and defensively. And like, we always get so hyped when she's hot because like, she's so dangerous and she's like a big glue player for us. So I would definitely during playoffs, keep an eye on her. Nobody is supposed to be allowed to have arms that long. Like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) They just keep coming and it seems like they, (laughs) they stretch. It's pretty remarkable. Well, listen, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. I know I'm not supposed to root, but I will be rooting for you to block some shots in the playoffs and hopefully our paths will cross soon. Thanks for being on Burn It All Down. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. Amira, want to get us started? Yeah, I do. Football is the never-ending thing that gives me all the burns. And I want to burn... Last week it came out that the New York Jets, particularly the senior manager of partnerships, Anthony Black reached out to the founder of the organization called Blue Lives Matter and hoped to partner with the organization this season to honor people. But this did not go over very well with the founder of Blue Lives Matter, Joe Imperatus, who rejected it immediately on the grounds that the current NFL political climate, quote, oh, he basically said that the current NFL protests are, quote, a sign of disrespect towards our first responders, our military members, and both past and present, and our flag. 
which is uh, okay. Uh, I don't know how all of a sudden the flag became about first, first responders. responders. It's, yeah. like, it's like, how many things can we throw in there that actually have nothing to do with these protests? So now it's about first responders as well. And after Bullock pointed out that the Jets, he said, oh, well, we've never had a player protest the anthem. And he was like, oh, but you've you've signed Isaiah Crowell, who, if you remember back in 2016, a post on IG where he captioned, they give police all types of weapon and they continuously choose to kill us weak. But the picture that he attached that caption to depicted a grim reaper with a knife to a cop's throat. And so he said, well, you signed him. If I'm correct, the Jets signed the individual who depicted the Grim Reaper slicing the throat of a police officer. And this, you know, was offered as reasons why they weren't offering this partnership. So the thing that I particularly want to burn is twofold. Of course, burning this, the Blue Lives Matter founders like equation with the flags to once again, military members, but adding in first responders and again, trying to, you know, act like the protests are against the flag or the troops or any other kind of misdirection instead of actually listening to what players have been saying for three years now. So obviously that's very quite burnable, but also very the other thing I really want to burn is the Jets trying to forge a partnership with an organization that literally in its name has set itself up on a certain false dichotomy, which is that the opposite of Black Lives Matter is Blue Lives Matter, which again is built on a false premise that people saying Black Lives Matter is somehow anti-cop, that people saying Black Lives Matter is somehow saying first responders don't matter or somehow waging a war against them. And this particular organization has been quite harmful in the dissemination of that idea. And I see this right along with stadium police who want to protest the national anthem who who you know in st louis when they didn't want to come to work because a few people you know protested on the rams when they were still in st louis and it's ridiculous stop making false equivalencies like stop doing it we have so many depictions of moments of police brutality on a daily basis we are assaulted with images of black death and terror and People are trying to speak to that and all of this deflection and false dichotomies and like, all of it is ridiculous. And for the Jets to reach out to that organization as a means of partnership in something that they would never, ever do <laughs> to say Black Lives Matter, they would never, you know, enter in a partnership with Social Justice Act organization except to shield themselves from accusations. It, was, it just got under my skin and I'm just over it. I'm over it. I'm over his statement. I'm over the failed partnership. I'm just over it. I want to burn, burn it, it Burn Burn. <laughs> burn. Burn. All right, Shakia, what do you want to torch this week? Well, I grew up in Ohio. I'm a super proud Ohioan. And I am to most people who meet me, it bothers them. But I'm an Ohio State fan. And I know you guys talked about them a couple episodes ago. I was like shaking my fist and trying not to scream the entire time. I throw the entire football program away. Just all of it. Everybody like throw it away. I don't even I look, I can't even speak. I have no words like it's a mess. It gets messier 
every day from watching fans of the team, like basically victim blame to a rally of people who probably have never actually been on campus for anything other than a football game. Like it's just been so disgusting every single day. You have text messages, you have a mother-in-law who may or may not have sent text messages. It's too much. It's trash. The right thing should have been done from the jump, and it hasn't been. And this 14-day taxpayer-funded investigation, for what? Just throw it all away. Yeah, burn. Burn that. I know we're in the middle of the burn pile, but I'm going to do this anyway uh, since I have Shaki here. What do you think is going to happen? I feel like they're supposed to announce it today. What do you think is going to happen with Urban Meyer? He's going to stick around as an I have no hope. Yeah. <laughs> I have no hope. I really think they were like, okay, we'll suspend him because it's the obvious thing to do here. I don't think he's going anywhere. I don't know. Do I think he should go? Absolutely. Get rid of everybody, honestly. But to rock his cheers. <laughs> you all know my thoughts on that. I was going to say, last, but... last time Shakira was on, she suggested that we just get rid of sports for a year. <laughs> and like I restart, just, burn it all down and restart it. Sports. <laughs> I mean, this isn't new stuff. This is continuous. It's systemic. It's in the like, it's in the programs. It's in the sport. Right. But I almost like, feel like because it's systemic, they suspended him and tried to wait till it blew over until there was enough. Because honestly, right, the stuff that started coming out about Maryland almost overshadowed the the shit show at Ohio State, and I kind of feel like that's what they were waiting for, <laughs> like. Oh, absolutely. That's why I was like, they had to obviously suspend because they're like, okay, if we give this a little time, football season will start, everyone will be caught up, it'll be over. I mean, it's disgusting. I have no hope. I don't think he's going anywhere. I'm pretty sure in a couple of weeks, we'll see him running out in the field and I will feel just as disgusted. Yes. To raucous cheers. And he'll win by a few blowouts and, and then it'll be like what story. what happened he'll have How overcome his comeback oh, yeah. Overcome. oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> with his millions and millions in taxpayer money oh we can trust this in advance <laughs> burn yeah. it in advance yeah, yeah. No, no joke <laughs> okay so my burn pile this week it's brief i want to burn the atlanta major league baseball team for being hosts of an upcoming fan fundraising event for the republican candidate for governor in georgia the horrible racist and xenophobic Brian Kemp. According to Deadspin, the team had to shell out $13,200 to be hosts. They're like co-hosts for this event. If you don't know anything about Kemp, he's the worst. Here are some recent headlines about him and his campaign from Slate. Quote, Brian Kemp's bid for governor depends on erasing the black vote in Georgia. It's working. From the New York Times, quote, Brian Kemp, enemy of democracy. <laughs> it's like so tight so short and tight there in a campaign ad kemp had a line quote i've got a big truck just in case i need to round up criminal illegals and take them home myself cnn describes him as quote georgia's shotgun toting trump style republican candidate for governor and to, like all of that's bad he's bad on his own but then to cap it all off he's running against stacey abrams who if she wins would be the first ever black female governor in the history of the united states it's 2018 she also used to be a romance novelist so you guys know like that's close to my heart <laughs> she is just as well <laughs> yeah exactly his politics are total garbage like and so instead of supporting her, the Atlanta baseball team chose Kemp to support publicly with their name, with their team 
name. And so I just want to say, stick to sports, you assholes, and burn it. <laughs> burn. burn. <laughs> After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First, our honorable mentions. Courtney Vandersloot of the Chicago Sky, who with 10 assists and a 91-88 win over the Minnesota Lynx, set the single-season WNBA assist record with 241 assists. The Chilean Women's Soccer Players Union, ANHUF, which is hosting the first-ever forum of South American women players at the United Nations in Santiago. Women from around the region will share experiences and form the first association. Lindsay Harding, the former Duke and WNBA star, who was hired by the Philadelphia 76ers as a full-time scout for next season. Harding, the number one overall pick in the WNBA in 2007, is only the second former WNBA player to be hired as a full-time scouting position with an NBA team. Former U.S. Olympic gold medalist and current US UCLA gymnast Kyla Ross and Madison Koshin who have publicly disclosed that they, too, were abused by former USA Gymnastics and Michigan State doctor Larry Nasser. Alex Scott, the former England, Arsenal, and Boston Breakers player who made TV football history in becoming the first female Premier League pundit. And Lisa Byington, Danielle Slayton, and Katie Witham, who together will become the first all-woman crew to call an MLS game. They will call the game later tonight, Sunday, August 19th, on Fox Sports 1 when DC United heads to New England. This entirely female announcing team will be the first ever for any of the U.S.'s five major men's professional team sports leagues. That's wild. All right. A drum roll, please. <laughs> and the badass of the week are the USA softball team. They repeated as softball world champions, defeating Japan 7-6 on a walk-off single. What a game. Yeah, a walk-off single by Kelsey Stewart in the 10th <laughs> inning. With the win, the USA has secured a berth in the Olympic Games in Tokyo 2020 when softball will return to the Olympics. Congratulations. Yay. Okay, yeah. They're really I'm so fun excited to watch. that we're going to get softball back in the Olympics. That's going to be great. Okay, so what is good with you all this week? Amira, what's been good with you? The Red Sox are still good in my world, so <laughs> I know everybody was wondering about that. Uh, <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, I know. So I don't know. This is like semi. I'm not happy classes are starting in gulp. By the time you hear this, I will be teaching. But I'm trying to find the joy in it. And I'm really excited to meet my new crop of students in my race, gender and sports class and have critical conversations on sport with a whole new batch of folks and get into uh, see what podcasts they produce. Just have good conversations. Uh, they're reading Jess's book. They're reading articles from Shireen and Lindsay. I'm trying to get Brenda to appear in the classroom. So I like to bring my co-host into my classroom with me. And so I'm excited for the possibilities of the semester, even though I wish it wasn't starting this week. And the real something good that's happening this week is that my youngest, my little maniac, Zachary, is turning two on Thursday. Oh, wow. Happy birthday I can't believe it's been two years. <laughs> I officially have no babies anymore. Just one very determined and hard-headed toddler who thinks he's grown. But I 
just am very excited to celebrate him and <laughs> kids go back to school. My kids, and not the students, <laughs> they go back to school. And so that is also something good. And Jackson's starting kindergarten. So that is half a daycare bill that I do not have to pay <laughs> anymore. <laughs> and that, my friends, is very good. <laughs> I totally feel that. Shakia, what's good with you? I am going to Belize in a month. Oh, wow. The trip came along kind of out of nowhere. A friend of mine called me at seven something one morning on a weekday. And I'm like, what's wrong? Is it an emergency? And she says, oh, I found tickets to Belize for under $400 round trip. Let's go. Right. Right. (laughs) When someone calls you and says, let's go to Belize for a week for less than $400 round trip. You (laughs) You get online and order that. (laughs) And the best part of it is my friend is a dual citizen. She partially grew up there. So we're going to see her family. It's going to be their Independence Day. So it's carnival. Right. I am so excited. Now that it's a month away, I'm like, okay, now I need to prepare. That's where my mind is. I'm totally a planner, but not like of all things, but I'm super excited now. It's a month away. Belize is a big baseball place. So I'm hoping to maybe run into the occasional person at a bar who wants to tell me about <laughs> their baseball origin oh, story. I love that. Those wow. would be the best interviews, like in the middle of Carnival. <laughs> like, yeah, that sounds so great. So my what's good is that I'm actually going to the Women's Baseball World Cup. It's Ooh, I know, I'm very excited. Nice. It starts on Wednesday, but I actually won't get there until Sunday of next week. And so I'll be there for the Super Rounds and then for the bronze medal game and the final game. And, you know, my parents are thrilled. They live 10 miles from there, so I'll get to see them, too. I had a great visit to Texas Tech to participate in their summit about ending sexual harassment in the academy. We fixed everything. It's all going to be good now. Of course not. But it was a really cool... I've, I've really enjoyed the couple trips I've made to Texas Tech. And yeah, I think my kid goes, goes back to school tomorrow as well. So the regularity of schedule. <laughs> Such an old lady thing to say, but still, like, <laughs> that's a very good thing in my world. Exactly. And you got an award. I did. In October, the Texas Freedom Network is giving me what they call their Smooty Award. It's named after a woman whose last name was Smoot, and it's about someone who does work that they think is important to the community. So I'm very honored. Which is what you do. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. All right. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to Shakia Taylor for joining us this week. You can find her on Twitter at CurlyFro. Go follow her right now. And thank you all for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For more information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We love hearing from you. If you enjoyed this week's show, do me a favor and share it with two people in your life whom you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings really do help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. One more thank you to our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burnitalldown. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash burnitalldown. So that's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Until next time. Um.